What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board games. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm disease-free, Walker. How are you? So far, we have been lucky in our little town here. We're not being hit too, too hard. We'll see how that goes in the next couple of weeks. That being said, let's get on to more friendly and happier things. Oh, thank goodness. We're going to talk about some board games. We're going to talk about the games we played this week with a little spotlight on MOBAs. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game, which is Tainted Grail, Fall of Avalon. What I do want to say, though, Mark, is that in these times, we just need to be more patient with people. Everyone's taking this in their own way. Some people are very stressed out about it. I am not one of those people, but some people seem to be very stressed. So just try to be more patient. And when you're about to say something or do something, just think, is this going to improve the quality of life for the people that I'm interacting with? Because everyone's going through their own thing. I can't help but feel that this is somewhat pointedly directed at the person sitting across the table from you. And at an appropriately safe distance, of course, but nonetheless sitting across the table from you. I will say this. I've commented on this before, both on this show and in the context of various social media, particularly Twitter. Solidarity is being manifest by distancing and by being apart. The world is coming together so that people can be alone, which is bizarre. But just everyone needs to remember, especially the listeners here, and I, I've, I've honestly been very touched by a couple of listeners who are in actually consequential fields of life, to reach out and say that we are a tiny bastion of normalcy or whatever passes for normalcy within, within the confines of the show. 
And that is one of the reasons why I'm motivated to keep doing it. But we're all in this together. We're all in the same place. We're all feeling it in various different ways. Me, myself, for example, my hair is is all limp and listless. My hands are transforming into lizard scales. My my I don't have a beauty regimen normally, but I don't have my normal shampoo, and I'm washing my hands 12 times a day. And so as a result, I believe my epidermis has been stripped away to a single layer of skin. And so my hands might literally explode at any point in time. They are quite translucent. Yeah, it's not a good... It, how can they be both transparent and bright red? This is a fascinating question. But anyway, you're right. All this is to say we need to be kind to one another and we need to be very conscious of the struggle that everyone is experiencing. And a lot of people are suffering in a lot of different ways. My heart goes out to all of those people. And just try to find your way through it. Because again, we're all in this together. So the games we played this week. Mark, I got to play Monera with the new expansion. I'm very jealous one of these module ones where you can play with a bunch of different things so what's in it are these new levels that have like specific rules when you play with them like ones that have uh like little i'm gonna say conveyor belts let's say because there's like an entry place that can you can play any color of pillars you want on them but you have to start at a certain space and if you want oh, fascinating if you want to add another pillar you gotta physically push that along the conveyor to a new spot and then add the new pillar oh, and goodness. then if you want to add another one then you have to now you know shimmy along two pillars and then add the third one and then all sorts of other ones like that say uh there's another one that has four four different pillars and two and two are linked it's hard to explain but say a black and a red and a yellow and a blue and you have to play them in that order like so if you don't play a black and a red then you can't play stuff like that or you have to play ones in certain order anyway all sorts of different rules for these different levels there's cards that will change the whole rules of the game there's uh new action cards that you're going to add to the three difficulties and there are also gems much like, you know, the monkeys in Super Rhino Battle, there's little gems that you're going to place on the different levels. And there's uh, level cards, which is what we tried as well, is that there is a card now for every single level in the game. So instead of, you know, how you're trying to, like, shuffle them all together and create this pile of... You don't need to do that anymore. You can just use this deck and flip it up, and you can do it in any way you really want to. Oh, that seems Flip up four and pick one, or, you know, we well how we did it, we did it, you know... Sight unseen. It's like, okay, we have to place a level, flip a, flip up a card and see which it is. Like, So we had no idea what we were going to come up so against. So for, for context, this is Minara, the co-op dexterity game. And you had actually commented that you wished that there was some possibility of a traitor, which I thought was a terrible idea. Is there any such module in Minara? No, no. There's okay, no, it's good. still full co-op. No way to make it nastier. Okay. But anyway, we had tons of fun. We loved everything that we tried out. So, so if you have Minara and enjoy it, I would 100% say that the expansion is for you. Sadly, one of the biggest draws of Monera is no longer an option because every time you play Monera, it will draw a crowd. It's true. And it this the, what the expansion does do, though, it does add a little bit of setup to it because when you add these new levels, it says, okay, if you're adding these new levels, then you have to add these this number of these pillars, like certain colors and everything else. So you're adding pillars, and then you also have to add cards. So it's like a certain weird setup that you have to do. So unfortunately, it does add a little bit to the beginning of the game, but I think it's worth it. And it's designed by Oliver Reitberg, and it's put out by Zoc Games. Glad to hear the Minara expansion is a success. Played another round of Sentinels of the Multiverse online, and I'm going to be commenting both on the games themselves and the venues in which I played them, because any game that I don't play with Walker is going to be played on some sort of digital platform. And last week I vowed that I was going to explore as many different platforms as I could to try to feel out how I could maintain my gaming hobby in the context of self-isolation. 
Sentinels was with the first-party app put up by Handelabra Games, and I'd been playing the Sentinels PC game on and off on a solo basis uh, for, for a few months. Because for a relatively mindless game and with a lot of very flashy art, I felt that it l- lends itself relatively well to PC adaptation. And I have to say that in what will be a recurring theme of my whining about the privations of isolation, I don't really like many of the multiplayer options for Sentinels of the Multiverse when done digitally. Here's why. It really emphasizes the ways in which digital implementations are vastly less efficient than physical implementations. Everyone always talks about how cumbersome it is in Sentinels of the Multiverse to find the hero with the most hit points. And, oh, the computer takes care of it for you. And yes, this is absolutely true. But there are two things that were very, very prevalent in my most recent playing of Sentinels of the Multiverse in the app that were very, very frustrating. One of them is, an effect might say, deal one point of damage to every target. Well, in the physical version, that's fine. It takes hardly any time at all. Everyone just dishes out tokens and there you go. In the PC version, it feels like it's an entire episode of a show where every separate target shows up on the screen and there's this little animated effect and then and then it goes away. And the only way to deal with that is to turn off all the effects and at that point things might happen so quickly that you can't track what's going on in the first place. So it's this awkward balance. The second thing that happens, which is unfortunate in a multiplayer game is you might have something like every person has to discard a card in person this is trivial everyone gets to make the decision at the same time and it just goes very quickly when you're doing the app well then you all get to wait and it all happens in sequence and i am not a fan now is to borrow a part a phrase that is unfortunately in far too much parlance and currency in Current public discourse, is the cure worse than the disease? No. Because as a venue for getting together, and again, on a regular game night, and for getting together with the same people that you would be getting together with otherwise on a game night, it serves very well. This is the ideal kind of format for me because it's a game that everyone knows backwards and forwards. It's not a very complicated game to begin with, but it's a game we've been playing for years. And so that part was very enjoyable. But the interface issues and the implementation issues are just getting more and more grating to me. So I think what I'm going to have to do is either just learn to live with it, which will come as no surprise to our viewers, I'm not very good at that, or trying to fiddle with the settings to find a way that I can get it to work to my specifications. But at any rate, I still adore Sentinels of the Multiverse. Getting to explore lots of different hero and villain and environment combinations has not lost its appeal even after nearly 10 years of the game's publication. I would just rather play it with physical cards. (laughs) That was... Sentinels of the Multiverse, I'm going to talk about uh, Fox and the Forest Duet, which I got to introduce to Mark, even though I introduced him with the wrong rules. I think we still well, got the gist of how it was played. Why don't you tell the full story, Walker? Walker explains to me the, the game. We play the game, and we come to the conclusion that it is vastly too easy. And I say, well, one thing that we could do to make it slightly harder is to double up tokens on these spaces. And Walker starts poking through the rule book, and he says, oh, yeah, that's actually exactly what we're supposed to do. So again, what are these extra gems for? Oh, yes, they're supposed to be on the board, making the game harder. Well, it's it's weird. If I owned a game where I had these extra components and I didn't know what they were for, and there were these icons on the board, and I didn't know what the icons were for, and I felt that the game was vastly too easy, and the rulebook consists of charitably 25 words strung together, maybe, I might have tried to find it. Okay, I'm sorry, I should, I should start following the same advice you gave at the beginning of the show. Yeah. 
Everyone is struggling. Be, be patient, Murray. Yeah, exactly. Be patient. Every, every time I've read the rule book, I was multitasking. So I should have. Next time I read the rule book, I'm going to dedicate my soul. You got to hold attention. the rule book. You got to read yes, the rule book. You got to breathe. You got to blink. Every, it's, it's, I'm not going to do it while listening to a video and playing League of Legends and and reading a different rule book on another monitor. I'll I'll have to concentrate on just that. But that being said, what did you think of it? I think. With the crew coming up, we do have a copy of the crew and reading the the instructions of the crew and it I was thinking that there was gonna be a lot more rules depth in the crew in the crew. Not I mean like not in the actual gameplay rules, but in the missions, like what you had to do in order to win the tricks. I thought there was gonna be a lot more there, but it, it and I I think I like it how how easy and basic it is, and Fox in the Forest definitely is, you know, just trick taking with a little bit of side stuff on there, right? So we're comparing them because they're both cooperative, cooperative trick-taking games. Yes. I'm very disappointed that the crew seems to require three or more players, which basically means we will not get to play it. We're trying to investigate Tabletop Simulator circumstances where we're going to be able to play it more on Tabletop Simulator for me in just a moment. But I was kind of hoping that it would be workable two-player. There is a two-player variant. It does not look very promising. I am very intrigued by the communication rules in the crew. That, that to me, is the primary draw because the upshot in The Fox and the Forest is you're just not allowed to say anything about the game state, which has at least the virtue of being clean. Communication restrictions are a strange beast, and I think we might actually want to devote an entire topic to it at some point because various games have tried various things, and some work and some don't quite work, at least in the case where you're just not allowed to talk about the state of play. That makes things somewhat reasonable. And I really enjoyed it for what it's worth. Look, trick-taking games at the end of the day are always about managing your hand, looking about whether you can win a trick, and if so, with which card you would want to spend to do it, and vice versa, when you're losing it, with what card. And the co-op element really just added slightly more texture to that because you have shared goals. Instead of trying to win a bid or win a bid exactly or miss all the tricks, you're instead looking at this track and it wants to go back and forth. I thought it was clever. I thought it was cute. I did prefer it to The Fox in the Forest because The Fox in the Forest, although as a proof of concept was very impressive, I would not have expected a two-player trick-taking game to work at all. But it does work largely by virtue of its special powers. And so when I was playing the duet version, I was expecting the special powers to have a very, very large prominence, because that's more or less how the Fox in the Forest works. But in the duet version, they very much recede into the background, and they're just much more subtle and much more situational and tactical rather than just figuring out, these are how I'm going to have to exert pressure on the game. Which is, which is fine. you got to do something, because otherwise a trick-taking game is more or less pure luck. you got to have something in terms of the bidding systems or the special powers or something or other. All this to say, I found it very enjoyable. I, like you, am very much looking forward to The Crew, which is also a co-op trick-taking game. And it is hard to quibble too much with a game that is that simple, that accessible, that visually appealing, and gives a spin on a very centuries-old type of format. So I enjoyed the Fox and the Forest duet, although I don't necessarily know that there's a whole lot there there. That's produced by Renegade Games, and the designer is just Foxtrot Games. They didn't actually you know, yeah. peg down an actual person. I'm getting tired of all of these design collectives like Prospero Hall and Foxtrot Games and all this stuff. I I like attribution. I think it is important to be able to put a name to these people. At any rate, it's their right. If they want to identify that way, then that, that's up to them, but I find it frustrating. I played PAX Renaissance over Tabletop Simulator. I got to play with a friend of ours that lives in Saudi Arabia, so this isn't even a question of social distancing. This is just a question of, say, the Atlantic Ocean and many, many, many hundreds of kilometers. Thankful social distancing. 
Oh, calm down. This is, this is, a, deli- this is a delightful man whom, whom I shall call Dr. Stallone, based he, on his enthusiasm for Eye of the Tiger. He is delightful. Dr. Stallone and I sat down to Pax Renaissance. Once again, everyone wants to know, was I able to resist the siren song of the handsome? The answer is once again, no. Once again, I purchased the handsome. Once again, I played the handsome. However, very interestingly and very appropriately, the handsome's jihad in Hungary was successful and it became a caliphate and he was in control for five hot seconds because guess who showed up to conspire the caliphate back into a, a medieval aristocracy, none other than his older brother, Vlad of Dracul. So it was all in the family. It was very appropriate. Also got to talk the the current state of play about how things are going on in Saudi Arabia. Dr. Stallone very appropriately made a joke about how all of his colleagues are attempting to treat disease using nothing but meditation and herbs because Phil Eklund have a whole bunch of racist nonsense in the <laughs> rule book of Pax Renaissance about how people in, quote, the East don't believe in things like science or reason or empiricism or any of that nonsense. So it was very, very appropriate. I adore Pax Renaissance. I hate tabletop simulator. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It is a necessary evil to serve a purpose. I do not find it an on-ramp to a different style of experience the way I do, say, dedicated apps like Sentinels of the Multiverse. I have my quibbles with Sentinels of the Multiverse. Tabletop Simulator, I just have negative feelings about, purely. I installed it today, and I can only say the same thing. I'm going to have to try it and bear it down because it was a gift, so I'm I'm going to have to give it a try, and, and we have the, I have the crew all set up for us, so we're, we're going to try I'm, some I'm things. I'm slightly more optimistic about the crew because... The number of different components you have to manage just increases the, the the burden of managing things exponentially, in my experience. Because Especially since one of the things that I find most frustrating, most alienating, because I feel alienated when I'm playing over Tabletop Simulator, is not being able to glance at different areas of play. Managing the cameras and panning over and looking at this thing as opposed to the other thing and not being able to see them all at the same time, I find so distracting and alienating. Plus, there's a button that says flip the table. How can how can you not hit that button? And you can also slide, like drag your mouse across and, and grab all of the components at once and just toss them off the table. I, this is going to be very difficult for me, Mark. This is making your normal game playing behavior make a lot more sense. <laughs> so uh, I love PAX Renaissance. PAX Renaissance in terms of quality of gameplay to amount of materials you have to manipulate in order to get it done is very good. So in that sense, it's very much an ideal tabletop simulator game. But I I have serious misgivings about the platform. But it, look, so if I say it's a necessary evil, I'm going to be experimenting with it more. We're going to try to get together with Dr. Stallone and play some of the crew. I'm looking forward to that. And as I say, it's about picking your spots, trying to find the mods that are extremely well executed, that are very, very well scripted. And I've seen some very impressive work in a number of mods that I do not want to play, but are nonetheless very impressive in terms of the amount of stuff that they put in. And just just thinking about like picking a random game, like a random game with any normal normal quantity of components, uh, like Tigers and Euphrates. I couldn't imagine playing Tigers and Euphrates on Tabletop Simulator. It would strike me as a borderline nightmare. Always manipulating the scoring cubes and dealing with the tiles for the bag and removing tiles after a conflict. Oh, no thank you. Yeah. Not inclined. Yeah, no. Finally, I got to play Mezzo Souls for Zabalba. This is the expansion for Me- Mezzo. And I wanted to try the solo version because, you know, Tabletop Simulator solo version, that's pretty much what we're left with. And I have to say... Although more on solo versions, probably in a more in-depth topic later, the solo version for Mezzo was extremely impressive because Mezzo is an area control game, and usually it is very difficult to get AI opponents to react 
reasonably intelligently in an AI control game without making it incredibly burdensome and cumbersome. And the way Mezzo works in the solo version is you have these cards that have a variety of effects. And as I said, you pick, you pick from a menu of effects every time there's a conflict. And very simply in Mezzo, I'm abstracting away from a number of things. What you do is you pull an AI card and then you do the thing that corresponds to the action on the card of the card that you played. So for example, I've got a card that says you can do action one, two, or three. I play that card, I'm going to do action two. I pull an AI card, and it has an action two, and said, oh, in response, I'm going to do this thing. And then later on, as the conflict progresses, I now get to look at the AI card. The first one was a surprise, but going forward, if I do action one, I know it's going to do AI action one. If I do action three, I know it's going to do AI action three. And that is the context for making your future decisions. I thought it worked really, really well. It was dynamic, and nonetheless gave me a sense of surprise without feeling totally arbitrary, because half of it was scripted, and half of it wasn't effectively that was the, the that was the sensation and it moved along at a really good clip which is something that it's a hallmark of mezzo's normal experience it moves along very briskly but it was also a lot faster than normal mezzo because one criticism that i have of the game and this is a criticism i've heard echoed over a number of other critics is that it is it is too long mezzo is too long for what it is i still keep wanting to play it though because it's a very interesting tactical experience and I have to say that the uh, expansion content in terms of new gods and new tiles is very, very much for the good because a game like this thrives on variety and the god figures remain incredibly visually impressive and just being able to ma manipulate those. And one of the aspects of the AI is more and more gods keep showing up over the course of the game, which is very nice. None of them are very nice to you, but there you have it. And so that was my experience with the solo mode for Mezzo. I still want to show it to Walker, but it's not a really good two-player game, so I guess we're going to have to wait. So maybe more on it in, say, whenever Normalcy resumes. All right, was the designer and the publisher of that? Mezzo was put up by John Cloudus and Colossal Games. Now on to our little spotlight of MOBA games. And what we mean by MOBA are, th are computer games that use the minions streaming up lanes and towers and supporting the minions and trying to defeat your enemy's base. So League of Legends, if you know it, or... Dota, Heroes of the Storm, I don't know that anyone plays that anymore. All of those games. So what I'm going to do is talk, I'm going to quickly go through the four that I have on my list, Mark, and then you add any that you have. I'm just going to give all the information on them, and then we can actually start talking about this. So I have sure. Elo Darkness, published by Reggie Games, and the designers are... Mon Tommaso Mandadori yeah. and Alberto Parisi. And then I have Sky Terror by... Giacomo Neri, Riccardo Neri, Neri, and Riccardo Parmigiani. Very nice. See, you're much better at this than I am. And then I have Radiant by Jack Murray and Heel Turn Games. It's actually uh, Giacomo Morai. Gotcha. No, it's Jack Murray. It is Jack Murray. And Battle of Baternia, and that is by Chris Falkenberry. Chris the Fiori Fa no, yeah. never mind. And Stone Circle Games. So I... So these are all mobile games, and they have a very odd thing all in common, Mark, when I did some research on this. All of them have two Kickstarters... All four of these. Do you have? Sorry, before we go any further. What? Yeah, I'm going to get into it. Before uh, we go any further, do you have any any ones that you're going to talk about other than the ones I just mentioned? Well, I'm going to mention in passing uh, the two that are still, I think, my favorite, namely Rum and Bones, which was put out by Coolman or Not in 2015, revised a couple of years later in Second Tide, and of course the peerless masterwork of the genre, my favorite MOBA game bar none, which is Guards of Atlantis, which is going to be coming out with its sequel version perhaps sometime in the near future, although all timelines now are speculative in our new lifestyle. Which is also odd because both of those also have had two Kickstarters, or will have had two Kickstarters. So anyway, back to Elo Dark. Let's start with Elo Darkness. So Elo Darkness is a two Kickstarters, you say? 
It does. The first one was canceled. It, the first one was 217. Oh, yes, of course. And then they canceled it because they wanted to make it bigger. The relaunch, yes. And okay. And then they relaunched it. And then Sky Tear, they also canceled because they wanted to make it cheaper. The first one they had, they had all of the different elements. They used four different elements. Each element was a totally separate color, and they had their own minions, and it was a huge price point, and people were saying, we're not... We're not pledging because it's too expensive. And then Radiant is just straight up. It had uh, it had a recent expansion. Just expansion with another Kickstarter. And then Battle for Baternia, its first one just didn't fund. And then it came out with a second one. So just kind of a weird coincidence that they've all had too. It's true. What I find striking is that two of these games are from Italy and we played them over the past couple of weeks. And so for a while I was, we could have even made this, this mini topic the Italian MOBA game roundup. It's true. But then, of course, I had to go and spoil it by introducing, over the course of the past week, Radiant, which is from an Irish design team. So that, you know, it's still European, but it, it's now no, no longer nice and tidy. Sorry to interrupt. No problem. So what's different in ELO Darkness is that a lot of the stuff is abstracted away. There's no miniatures on the board. You're just moving these tokens and you're still showing some sort of progression. But it's mostly card play. The setup is a little extreme. You know, you're you're picking a bunch of items that you may or may not purchase throughout the game. You're picking your cards, your decks, your characters. So it's a little uh, setup heavy. But other than that, it was my favorite one out of all of them. And Mark's talked about, uh, like he said, you're very starved for cards through the whole experience. So you definitely have to, you know, decide where you're going to focus your attention on. It has the very feel of a mo game where you're where you pull out of lanes where you you know you're not going to push so hard here you're going to pull out and help somewhere else and it allows you to use those cards somewhere else and i really felt that gave me the feel that i wanted of a mobile game i defer to your experience in this because i played league of legends for only about two seconds enough to become fascinated by the format but convinced that i didn't want to play anymore because there are a number of things about actually playing mobas there's the dealing with strangers online, which I've already established I'm not very good at. There's the fact that matches take about 45 minutes. And then there's a number of other strange conventions like last hits and a whole bunch of other stuff and, and, and weird skill trees. But the fundamental structure, the, the notion that there are different lanes and that this notion of this dynamic push and pull of the momentum and the interaction between hero play and minions that are largely autonomous, that part fascinates me from a design perspective. And so when MOBA games first started coming out over the past five years, I, I'm endlessly enthralled by the ways that they decide to either implement or not implement various aspects of those conventions. And so when you say, and this was one of your comments after we finished playing ELO Darkness, that it felt to you more like a MOBA than a lot of the other MOBA games we had played. And could, could you elaborate a little bit more on no, that? Because again, it, I defer to your expertise. I mean, it's just the movement. Like I find all these other games were actually manipulating the figures around it just doesn't give you that flow that feel like okay i can just drop out of here quickly you know wiggle through the jungle and get to the other lane you know very quickly or you know up and down the lane or back and forth it's very dynamic when you're playing a mobile game and i haven't felt that in any any of those in these heavy miniature type games it just seems like it's like oh i can't move here there's too much stuff in the way or it's like you know turn after turn and you're slowly advancing it just felt because they all abstracted all the way it just felt more like this dynamic you know i pull out of here and now they're instantly available there and it just seemed that that's the way it should go i respect that but what about rigging in rum and bones rum and bones i was thinking about does it for me because it focuses on the minions in a very good way. They, they, they move in nice mobs and they're easy to kill. And, and it gives you that 
you know, this is my character and he's super powerful feel. And they, you know, they zip in there and they, you know, destroy the minions. And like you said, the rigging where you can like just move. You have movement options yeah, so that you're not options. really, because I agree with you entirely. When you have a MOBA style game and you feel too committed to a lane, if you're stuck in a position and, and, and repositioning is too expensive or too cumbersome, then that can really sap a lot of the dynamism and a lot of that interesting elements of geography that you really might want out of a MOBA adaptation. Now, whether any of the other games that we're going to talk about suffer from that flaw, we'll get to in a moment, but I absolutely agree that that is a, an excellent and feature. And Roman Bones is mostly just back and forth, right? Where these other ones sort of like try to emulate the League of Legends style where there's like a, you know, a three stage, like there's a center point and then, you know what I mean? There's like multiple stage long where Rum and Bones is just, you know, either you're on one side or the other. Well, if anything, the lanes in Rum and Bones are more dynamic than you're actually going to find in most MOBAs because you might have really pushed the lane very successfully, but then even a couple of turns later, as a result of committed actions on the part of your opponent, the lane is now pushed back to your side of the board. That I really appreciate, but I, I recognize that for someone who's more accustomed to the ebb and flow of actual MOBAs, a, a slightly more stately pace that something like Elo Darkness has might feel more apropos. I just have what I have here is a little odd card play. It has this style where you have to start off with one of the character cards that are in that lane. And if you don't, then you can't follow up with a character card that is yes. in that lane. Elo Darkness has one of those things. And I think I'm getting slightly better explaining games like that, where very often you might think you're allowed to play a card, but you're just not. The restrictions, they're not particularly onerous, but they're not intuitive. You know, the iconography could have been a little bit better. The terminology could have been a little bit better. And I hate as a game explainer, especially in a two-player head-to-head game, Having to keep saying, no, you can't play that card now. You can't play that card now. No, no, no. Yeah, that that whole thing you planned out. No, I'm sorry. Precisely. And it has to be restrictive for a variety of reasons, and I respect that. But I'm getting a little bit better at flagging that in 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 the upfront. And yes, that is absolutely true about Elo Darkness. The one thing that I wish Elo Darkness did was it would just represent minions. Because, that's again, that's one of the fundamental features of MOBA style games that I find so fascinating. The interaction between the heroes that you directly control and minions over which you only have indirect or peripheral control. And the sim- Elo Darkness is probably the most complicated or at least the most rules heavy of the ones that look at minions and say now we don't want to bother with that because battle for baternia and radiant both just do away with minions there are no minions to be found they're completely gone and to be honest although i i I agree with you there's a lot to like about elo darkness i miss the minions agreed now speaking of minions we have sky tear which does have the minions but i think in that case i've written here it just seems to be busy work you know you're putting the minions on you're taking them off you're putting them back on Seems just like a lot of busy work for that. And then it has these line of sight rules. And whenever you're, you have line of sight rules in a miniature game, it just always leads to problems. Yeah, Sky Terror is weird. I was super op- optimistic about Sky Terror because, as you say, it involves the minions back. But the minions involve rather a lot of overhead for very, very little payoff. The notion of pushing and of farming doesn't really exist in the way that I would want it to. For example, one of the th- one of the reasons why minions exist in most, most MOBA games, both online and offline, is for the sake of buffing up your heroes. You spend some time killing them rather than going directly after your opponent's heroes, and then you get some payoff either in, ter- in terms of getting more equipment or experience or what have you. And in Sky Terror, first of all, they're very hard to target. 
you broadly speaking have two ways to attack people in Sky Terror, but only one of them ever affects minions. And this is something that we were both forgetting on occasion. So it was weird. There's a there's also a really strange, very restrictive action system in Sky Terror. Every hero has three actions, but you can't do the same action more than once. And there's only five available actions effectively. So it, you don't really feel like you have a whole lot of freedom with what to do with your heroes. And there's a fixed rate of introduction of new minions. And you can't do anything to focus your efforts on bringing back more minions or what have you. There's this weird snowballing effect. If you fall behind in a lane, you're not apt to get back back out in front. So yes, the the, the minion integration in Skyterra did not satisfy me remotely. And as sort of a head-to-head PvP kind of thing, again, the action restriction just kicked in so hard that I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of latitude. I didn't really have a, a whole lot of room for clever plays. And on top of that, just circling back to what you discussed in the context of Elo Darkness, I didn't really feel that sense of dynamism of movement. I didn't feel like I could really have the freedom to go and head off in an entirely different direction because the movement uh, the movement abilities, although relatively substantial, didn't give me quite that degree of latitude. It did have an interesting push in pu- the, the flow, like the flow of the game was there, but the, how, it, how it sort of... The lanes got pushed. I like that, how you counted up, you know, who had superiority and then, the, you know, you move, you lost minions and the difference. And if there was no minions, then you'd like push it, the tower closer. I, I think that, I thought that was kind of interesting. I like that in theory. I did not like that in practice. For one thing, and this is a minor gripe, but it was nonetheless consequential. All the minis are the same color and the minis are very small. Well, that's what I, I really liked the first Kickstarter, right? It showed the pictures and each faction was a complete, they had four different colors and each faction had their own minions. And I was thinking how, how much better that would have looked on the table and how much more interesting it would have been. Well, they still have different sculpts. The four different factions, quote unquote, have their own different sculpts, but in practice, they're so small. I was routinely having problems identifying who had which minions where, and it was difficult to eyeball what was going on. Plus in this day and age where every game has colored discs that clip onto the bottom of the bases or sometimes clip onto the bottom bases, you know, this really was in dire need of that. Absolutely. If you compare this to situations like Guards of Atlantis, Guards of Atlantis in many ways has a similar notion of how to decide where to push the lane. You tally up the total number of minions and the difference is inflicted in casualties. In Guards of Atlantis, I found it effortless and very consequential and the interaction between heroes and minions endlessly satisfying. And in Skite here, I found it much less satisfying on all those metrics. One aspect that I find fascinating, and I just want to flag this before we go on to some of these other comparisons, and I really want to hear your your, your thoughts on this as an experienced MOBA player, is in this entire list of MOBA games, and it's a long list, and I love almost all of these games, only one of them has team play, which is bizarre, because that's one of the defining elements of playing a MOBA game. You're on a team of other players. But all of these games, other than Guards of Atlantis, are two-player-only games, and all the team play options are the standard sort of cobbled-together team play options in games. Guards of Atlantis is the only one that takes seriously the notion that a single hero should be sufficiently demanding and engaging to manage to occupy a single player's attention, and you have to coordinate successfully with members of your other team. And I find it so strange that one of the universal and so salient elements of the video game format is only ever translated once in this nonetheless fertile board gaming design space. It's so strange to me. Well, it's got that fantastic, you know, where everyone's putting the card down at the same time and then you reveal it, right? So that, I think it really breaks down on on the downtime, right? Whereas if you 
made this a four-player game and everyone was taking their own actions, I think it just it would bog down and even further take you out of that MOBA experience. Whereas in Guards, Guards of Atlantis, everyone's flipping over the card. Either you guessed right or you're going to be able to do something useful or you're not, and it goes around fairly quickly. That's true. On to Radiant. And it's more of a card game, I felt, than an actual, actual MOBA game. It does have the sort of, you know, putting your cards in a lane, you know, with your heroes, but once again, no minions really to speak of. None at all, yeah. Again, one of the fascinating things is what do you decide to implement, what do you not decide to implement? And Radiant had the notion of there being towers you needed to destroy, had the notion of leveling up your heroes. And leveling up heroes is one thing that is very firmly ensconced in the board game implementation of these things. But it also had buying equipment. Not necessarily in a robust way, certainly not in nearly as robust a way as you would have in Elo Darkness, Actually, no, Elo Darkness is the only other one that that really seriously takes uh, equipment uh, purchasing. Guards of Atlantis kind of sort of does, but it's not really in the sense of going and buying equipment. It's in the notion of deciding how to level up your hero. And I honestly, it felt more to me like a MOBA, and it seemed to be more interested in, in, in carrying through the conventions than a game like Battle for Baturnia. I like Battle for Baturnia, but it really does feel a lot to me just like a head-to-head skirmish game. And the other stuff is window dressing. Yes, it's got towers that you can go bust down, but mostly it, it feels more to me like a skirmishy type thing than anything else. In Sky Tier, at least, you have this notion of, do I defend my towers? Do I make a push on another tower? And things like that, which, to my mind, is one of the salient things that sort of informs the geography of a MOBA game. Agreed. And and for what it's worth, we didn't talk about it. I really enjoy Radiant. This was the first time I played it. I was very, very impressed. You did not seem quite as pleased with it. Not really. It, it has this weird energy system where you get you get this power that you're going to use to, you know, upgrade your heroes. and Power, and, money, and, experience, and, whatever. It's all the same. All the same. And, and through part of the game it's really hard to get and then suddenly there's a switch goes off and then you just don't need it anymore it just seemed arbitrary by then that is true but it was more a question of that's the end game we're in the end game now it's just a function of someone driving it over the finish line i I actually i was impressed by how well the economy worked given how parsimonious it was in the early and mid game i thought that it was going to lead to no one ever leveling up no one ever buying any equipment and while I agree with you, by the end of it, it was relatively superfluous. I was I was surprised at how well calibrated it was for the rest of the game. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I thought just some of the cards. It didn't seem as though the cards did much more than add plus one or plus two. I wish there was a little more craziness in the cards. Really, you normally strongly object well, not, when someone not plays a card over and the top, wild not totally wild, but just not more than just you know battle modifiers. Okay, well, for context, in Radiant, cards can roughly be used for one of two things. One of them is what's called talent effects, and by the way, some of the terminology in terms of the technical terms in Radiant could have used a couple of more passes in terms of clarity and consistency. But you can use them for you can spend actions to play a card, and will have some sort of effect out of battle. If you attack a tower, the battle is entirely deterministic. And no weird modifiers were come into play. But if heroes are fighting other heroes, and this difference actually I found found very interesting, then both sides can do what's called a clash. You can play a card face down on top of a hero, and then they're both revealed at the same time. And this might have special effects, but most of the time you're right, it's mostly just stat modifiers. But this, I think, really helped inform the hand management. It helped inform the, the notion that heroes fighting heroes is a more chaotic, dynamic affair than just making a push against a tower, important though those may be. And I thought it worked fine. Again, for a game of its simplicity no, and for a game of its of its duration, I thought that Radiant got a whole lot right. I know. It definitely worked fine. I didn't have any problems with the way it worked. I just wish there were some other cards that did other things. That's all. And speaking of hand management, which there was just much like Elo Darkness, there was not much of it. There was a, This is yet another very card-starved game. Yes. 
But that really helped inform when can I make a push? When can I go after a hero? When can I make this kind of other attack? When, sh- when do I need to marshal my resources to do anything else? And it has another interesting element that none of the others did where you have this super ultimate god type character that only comes out when all your towers are destroyed or you can kill one of your heroes and have them come out early and they do all sorts of crazy things. And yeah, rather I thought than, that was kind of interesting as well. Rather than trying to bust a base, you want to kill the opponent's boss, and the boss comes out at various times, depending. And the different bosses want to come out at different times, and that part I thought was cool too. And I'm, I, I, I'm sufficiently interested to explore the space. One god, for example, starts the game deployed, but you have to kill them twice. And that is an interesting element of building it. The, the game comes with enough components... So that every god is duplicated, every item is duplicated, and every tower is duplicated. So there's no restriction on army building from that perspective, and all that is hidden. The only elements that are limited are the heroes, and that you can do by either a draft or an open draft or a band draft, and there are a number of different ways to do it. I was I was reasonably impressed with the way that they decided to, to, to do that and doing the setup. And again, as compared to a game like Elo Darkness, Elo Darkness has deck construction whereby you get 25 cards that are just a function of the five heroes that you've selected, and that part's fine. And then you have to pick 12 action cards and three mana cards and then two items for each class. At that point, mm, you, for for like pre, pre-constructed tournament play, I'm sure it's the bomb. But for casual play, it's a little bit more daunting. Yeah. I thought that for, again, for a game of its duration, Radiant got things just about perfect. You select three heroes, each hero comes with a deck of 10 action cards, you're done. And so you have a certain degree of customizability, but no upfront uploaded decisions. I want to take this character because I think they look cool. Oh, these are the cards that I get. Let's discover them together. And also, I understand that this is probably just a concept that makes sense, but all of these games that we're talking about have all of that in common where uh, your initial deck is based on the characters that you take. These are all card-driven MOBA games, and they all have that same trait in common, where you pick certain characters, and you're going to get certain cards based on those characters in your starting deck. Well, that's not true of Roman Bones, because it's not card-driven. and well, it's, it, This Roman Bones is not on my list. Oh, well, that's very nice. It's also not really true of Sky Terror, because in Sky Terror, in theory... If you have expansions, because the base game of Sky Terror will give you an, will give you enough for two players. Absolutely 100%. It is not like God Tier, God Tier as opposed to Sky Terror. This is very important. Whereby the starter box is one of those insulting throwbacks from minis games back in the day where it's not actually a starter box. You, ha- you can play a full game in Sky Terror, but you won't be able to do any deck construction at all, which is not a serious problem for me because as I said deck construction is not something that I like when it is mandatory I'd like to have the option of customizability but not the necessity of it in Sky Terror, what you do is you buy some of those expansions, and they give you tons of cards that you can then use for your deck modification. So the way we played with just the starter box, there was no modification to be had, and there were just two heroes per faction, so take two factions, you're good. But there is room for more customization later. As opposed to Rum and Bones, which although not card-driven, Rum and Bones' attitude towards customization is just the standard Coleman-you're-not model, which is, here's 500 different heroes. Take the heroes you want, and you're, you're off to the races. That is our spotlight on MOBA games, my takeaway is that movement seems to be getting in the way, and I think they should abstract away a lot of the stuff. Abstracted movement can solve a lot of problems. It's the same thing that claustrophobia did, right? You don't need to be able to move five squares for movement to matter. Why move, why move five squares when one will do, says claustrophobia. And I get the same sense from things like Elo Darkness, from things like uh, uh, Radiant, where movement is just highly abstracted just into simple lanes. And I agree. 
Although, again, I find it so striking that only Guards of Atlantis gets the team play element in. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that has to be one of the reasons why I prefer it to all the rest of them, above and beyond the fact that it's, you know, purely deterministic and has a lot of mechanical cleverness in it. Agreed. And we're so looking forward to the new one. Yes, absolutely. I hope that they are able to launch the Kickstarter as planned. We'll see. All right. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So there have been more goodies given away online. Publishers are trying to do what they can to give people stuff to do while they're stuck at home. Cool Money or Not has made Xenoshift Dreadmire available for free for everybody as a print and play, which is great. I've commented that I think Michael Chanel, who is the designer both of Rum and Bones and Xenoshift, is one of the most underrated designers currently working today. It's a shame that he mostly gets, gets second billing to people like Eric Lang. And what's interesting about Xenoshift, we both like Xenoshift a whole heck of a lot. The print and play version is not the published version. The print and play version introduces a rotating market that you might find in things like Ascension or in any of the Realms games or what have you. You don't have fixed piles anymore, which is weird. Normally, I prefer the rotating market version because setup is easier and it gives you more variety. In Xenoshift, I think that the fixed market makes a lot of sense because it's all about building and exploiting combos and being able to kit out your troops in a somewhat reliable way. I'm not saying that I have misgivings about trying it the other way, but it makes me curious about what would happen if you try it the other mode. We've played Xenoshift a lot, and I'm kind of curious now to try the print-and-play version, given that there are some rules changes. So that's one thing that Simon has done. Good for that. I was going to say, it's going to have to be the print-and-play version. Otherwise, you're going to be shuffling all your equipment together, and you're not doing that to my game. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a bit of a problem. It's one of those things where once you go do it, you can't go back. Uh, another thing that caught my eye, because there have been dozens and dozens of great discounts and giveaways and fun things to find. The other thing I'd like to flag is Joseph McCulloch and Osprey Publishing have given you free copies of Frostgrave, the miniatures game, which has a campaign system, but try not to hold it against them. And they've released Frostgrave. They've released one of the major supplements to Frostgrave. And they've also released for free the solo rules. So if you want to try Frostgrave by yourself, solo Frostgrave is not entirely unlike Rangers of Shadowdeep, also by Joseph McCulloch, but that was self-published, not by Osprey Publishing, which is the campaign solo slash co-op minis game that I've been playing on and off for quite some time. And uh, although I've never played Frostgrave, I've always been curious about it. I don't really have the miniatures and terrain to satisfy it, but I do respect people that are just able to say, this roll of duct tape is a wizard's tower, or what have you. So kudos to Osprey Publishing and Joseph McCulloch for making that freely available. Some people have reported having problems with the website. They were a little overwhelmed with traffic, but I'm sure you'll be made whole eventually. And those are just two things for free that caught my eye on the internet lately. We hate dexterity games. I don't like talking about them, but you know, I might as well. There's this thing called Crazy Tower, Mark. Crazy Tower? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, we like Monera, so just think think of it as a competitive Monera game. Do you get to the Crazy Tower on the Crazy Train? Yes. Only by the Crazy Train do you get to the Crazy Tower. So what happens to this? You have Tetromino blocks. All aboard. And... You also have these cards that are a grid of squares and some of them are blocked out. So I didn't read the rule book, but you place down some of these blocks and then you put a card on top and the, the blocks that are blocked out. You're not allowed to put your tetrometers on top of those. So then you, and you get to place that anywhere you want. It's not as though it's like Monero where, you know, you have to, you know, so you sort of have to strategically place it. So it's harder for the next player to place their blocks on. So they put their blocks on and then they can put a level on this thing slowly, you know, spirals up and creates this 
crazy tower. Oh, I see what they did there. Ah, tricky. Ah. Ah. Anyway, I think it looks fantastic, and it's already available, so it's on already on my next order, and I'm getting can't wait to give it a try. Also, under the topic of free stuff online. Isaac Childress and Cephalofair have made several public campaigns for Gloomhaven available. These are sort of community-driven campaigns where every week Isaac Childress will post a new scenario and then the community decides how the campaign is going to progress, usually in some sort of very simple choose-your-own-adventure type of thing. Well, the latest one is called Blacksmith and the Bearer. This is the fourth community campaign. It was launched earlier this week. The second week will probably be up by the time you hear this. It also teased a whole bunch of new content. A whole bunch of new classes were made available in print and play form in Gloomhaven all the way up to level four in many instances, which since you're encouraged to start a new level one campaign with the community campaigns means you now have a ridiculous quantity of classes from which to choose. The new publish, uh, the new classes look great. And this also dovetails very nicely with the fact that the new campaign for Frosthaven, the sequel to Gloomhaven, is going live tomorrow. So by the time you hear this, it's probably already live. And there's a lot of Gloomhaven stuff to be had. Speaking of more free stuff, and back to MOBA stuff, uh, League of Legends has put out a online card game that is also free to play. It's called Legends of Rune Terra. Cough. That being said, it's still, for some reason, I really enjoy it. League of Legends, Mark, was a riot. No, sorry, was a blizzard. Uh, first started as a World of Warcraft. I thought that was Dota. I thought Dota started as a Warcraft 3 mod. It was, and then League of Legends came from that, and then people went sure. back to Dota. But League of Legends also came off of that thing. So why not say, well, so Blizzard also has a, a card game named Hearthstone, so why can't Riot say, hey, why don't we make some money from that as well? So it is so similar that it's painful, but it's yet another microtransaction type game, but you don't have to use any of these microtransactions. You make your decks. For some reason, I just really like it. I don't know why. I've only played a few games, but I just find it very interesting. Some of the combos you can get off and maybe the fact that the characters are familiar and some of the things are familiar. I, I have no idea. I just find it very interesting and the graphics are amazing. I, for one, cannot wait to see what their next board game project is going to be from Riot Games because seeing the amount of enthusiasm and resources that they threw to Mechs versus Minions, I, I, I'm very, very keen to see what they do, even from just a pure manufacturing perspective. Agreed. Finally, in terms of new stuff coming down the pike, there has been talk of a second edition of PAX Renaissance for quite some time. Huge fan of Pax Renaissance. One thing that I've always wanted for Pax Renaissance is more impressive chess pieces. There's this very cool notion in Pax Renaissance of there being a hierarchy of chess pieces from pawns to knights to rooks. And in the version that was published, it's got this lovely, lovely, lovely small box footprint. But the chess pieces are, shall we say, better left to the imagination. And I was always hoping that there might be some way to get better pieces for that. I've seen people with their own copies. Anyway, there's a Spanish deluxe edition, which apparently has better chess pieces. And the second edition of Pax Renaissance is going to be kickstarted in English on April the 7th. And this is going to include all the expansion material. It's going to introduce yet more new expansion material, a couple of minor rules changes that mostly serve to further magnify the quantity of things that might be expected to happen. Uh, just as a salient example, 
In Pax Renaissance, there is one version of theocracy, so the only kind of theocracy that England will ever become is a reformist theocracy, and now there's the possibility for every portion of the map to be two different versions of a theocracy, so you might have a counter-reformation in England, so it would become a Catholic theocracy instead of just being able to be a reformist theocracy. More historical options, more texture. Is everyone still awake? Hello? Is that Everyone's still there? Good. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, this is also going to be kickstarted alongside uh, PAX Viking, which is going to be Sierra Madre Games' next PAX game. I, I don't really know or care much about that, but I'll take a look at it. Anyway, second edition of PAX Renaissance, a game that is hopelessly out of print and very sought after and extremely excellent, will be kickstarted on April 7th. That is the news and why it does not matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is Tainted Grail, Fall of Avalon, which came out in 2019. Mark, who did Tainted Grail? Awaken Realms and two gentlemen whose names I will probably butcher, Christoph Piskorski and Marcin Swerkot. Now, first off, a, a little bit of a disclosure here in terms of the nature of the review. We have not finished the campaign. We're still very much in the early stages of the campaign. But upon reflection, I think that this is useful because... One of the temptations that I often have with respect to campaign-style games, if I want to review them, is I feel the need that I have to finish all of it. And this can lead to what could be charitably called the Death March. And there is no surer way to suck the joy out of something than a Death March type of situation. So I'm actually reasonably pleased to have the luxury in this particular context of being able to give our reflections on the early bits of the campaign. And when and if, and I don't know what Walker's thoughts about this will be, when and if we decide to pursue later bits of the campaign, we will then be able to check back in and give you our more yeah, no, mature this is, this is what I have at the very end is that I, I want to play this right out to the end. Even though I, there, I don't have all positive things to say, I definitely want to try to finish this off. I'm... I'm in the same boat, and honestly, I feel, and this is partially as a function of, of the, 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 the several criticisms I have of the game, because it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, if I had to finish it on a timetable or on a schedule, and this is absolutely not a, even a veiled criticism of any other reviewer who's, who's reviewed Tainted Grail, all that I'm saying is that my specific shortcomings with Tainted Grail, I feel, would be amplified and would drown out my pleasure of it if we played too much of it too quickly. Agreed. So... This is an adventure game. This is a, a campaign-driven, at overland adventure game, very much in the same vein as a lot of the games we, we, we name-checked when we were reviewing Post-Human Saga. You know, you can draw the, the, the line all the way back to Talisman if you want to. Probably the closest cousin to it that I would think of is Seventh Continent. I got, I got mostly a Seventh Continent vibe uh, while playing Tainted Grail, despite their differences. So why don't you give us an unhelpful summary, Walker, of what one does when playing Tainted Grail Fall of Avalon? I didn't do that, but I'll just wing it. I try to keep professional here, Walker. In Tainted Grail, you're not the hero. You are the, the not so much the anti-hero, but you're the backup squad. You're squad B. JV. Yeah. Squad A disappeared. Not quite sure what happened. You get little letters saying, we didn't pick you for the team because, you know, you're not quite ready for the bus. So, so we got, dis we dis we done disappeared, Mark. So come and figure out what happened. So you're, out on the adventure and either you're A, you just, it seems as though it's your sort of choice. You're either A, are you going to pick up the quest that they, that they had, or are you going to try to figure out what happened to them? Or are you going to just do your own thing? I thought they did a great job of that. And that is 
the the without going into detail and you know spoilers. Of course, uh, that is what I think you're doing in Tainted Grail. Well, to spoil the tutorial, and I think this is if you're going to spoil something, the tutorial might as well be it. And this is something that you didn't get to experience, Walker. But I think it really highlights this notion of you are not a hero in this story. You're just somebody trying to get by. The tutorial is you being sent out on a nonsense fetch quest so as to be away when the real expedition leaves because they didn't want to hurt your feelings too badly. (laughs) Nice. There's this notion that there are a number of good reasons for any of the protagonists for not being good candidates. And what's interesting to me and one of the reasons why I like the characters as much as I do is it's not just you're not high enough level yet. That's not so much the vibe. The vibe is we don't trust you or we think that you have divided loyalties or we think that you have psychological scars. Or or we just don't know who you are. Or we don't know you well enough. We don't trust yeah, you. Know, again, that's, that's the thing various versions of we don't trust you. Yeah, that's what I love. It's like in these other games, you go in and it's like, oh, you're finally here or thank God you're here. Exactly, or, exactly. Or, 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 you know, the heroes have arrived. This is like... What are you doing here again? What What's your name? Whatever you know, won't you go over there and in, in the corner and leave us alone? Well, and, and, the The big men are talking, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll let you know when we're done, and maybe I'll have something for you. And it even isn't just always anonymity. Most of the time, when people in the world know who your characters are, it's because they don't like you. They have reasons to re, you know, pal- palpable reasons to distrust you. And people have commented on how the world is unrelentingly dark, but I think that honestly, the quality of the writing and some of the novelty of the conceits earn that level of darkness. This isn't like a Games Workshop project where, you know, the grim dark future or ever, you know, the, the, the necrofiends, all we know is war, blah, 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 blah. It feels lived in. It feels like a lived-in, fleshed-out world, and as a result, a lot of and there are a lot of terrible things that happen, and a lot of very unpleasant elements. They feel more earned than a lot of other paper-thin, grimdark settings. It's true. That's one of the most fantastic things about this game is the story. I think it's not going to ruin have any spoilers in it. It's sort of it's they use the the King Arthur sort of mythos, and what's happened is that there's this huge plague that's just killing everyone, and King Arthur decides to round up what people he can and he's going to take them to this new world but in this new world it is also death and nasty and demons and weird stuff and they found out if they build these statues or wicker men or wood men or whatever you want to say they're called they're called menures that they you know push back this darkness and these demons and and give them a place to settle and to live away from this plague so the countryside is riddled with all these different menus all over the place, and this is what allows you to travel throughout this world, and I think that is such a fantastic game mechanism. And the menus are failing, and that's the big problem. That's the original, I want to say, Evénement des Clanchards, because I, I, studied, I studied dramatic structure in French. Uh, it's, the, <laughs> it's the original impetus for any of the, the, the main storyline to happen. And honestly, this is a world I care about, and I'm not accustomed to caring about worlds and adventure games because most of the time I find them so forgettable. There are a very short list of exceptions. I cared about the world in Kingdom Death Monster, but there I didn't care so much about what happened to any individual people. I just liked the texture. Here in Fall of Avalon, not only do I like the texture, I also care about what happens to the characters, even though I know they're probably doomed. I also felt the same way about Grimslingers. Grimslingers is a game that 
often maligned, but I really, really liked the setting, and I really liked the characters, and I really liked the the, the overall atmosphere of Grimslingers. And honestly, that's about it. In pretty much every other adventure game I've ever played, I usually found the writing at best forgettable, and usually the setting just like so much window dressing, and I didn't really care what happened to, to, to anybody. But in Tainted Grail, I do care what happens, and I think that's a that, that that's great. And it's a world where civilization is a mistake. And there's, it's hard not to really find that, that uh, find that appealing. I think I am a little worried because in our in our plays of Seventh Seventh Continent, right, we went on this huge adventure and it, it snaked its way through this huge dead end. Yes, right, which was devastating. But in in Tainted Grail, it seems as though we have all these different options, and we can do A or we can do B. And I am worried that maybe when we go to do B, that we'll go off on this huge tangent, or even A that we're on will go off on this huge tangent, and it will lead to a dead end and say, oh, sorry, you picked the wrong leg of the story. <laughs> do, 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 game over. So I'm, I, if it, I'm hoping it doesn't go that way, but anyway. Well, so talking about seven, one, uh, Seventh Continent, I hated Seventh Continent. Did a lot of things right. Mechanically, there were some things, and, and, you know, I could talk about the mechanisms. I experienced dread playing Seventh Continent. Dread not because of the setting, not because of the narrative, but because I found the experience so very unpleasant on pretty much every metric. And in Seventh Continent, it's very simple. You're on an expedition. You're, go- you're going to try to find this MacGuffin or this thing or whatever or release this curse. In Tainted Grail, you are given this initial setup. There are these people going off to do this thing, but they're gone. And there's the strong implication right from the beginning. You could go try to find them. You could go try to do the thing that they were trying to do. Or you could bugger off and do whatever else you want to do. And immediately, very much in the same style as adventure video games, you're bombarded with a whole bunch of story hooks and quest hooks. And it's just enough so that you feel like you have options, but not so many that they start to become forgettable. And you do feel a certain sense of angst about... Well, this one's interesting, but I guess I go have to have to go through this more interesting one, and that's a good problem to have, I think. And it is possible that some of these will result in dead ends, absolutely. But as I say, there are backups. There are other things that I could go thinking doing. Now, this is both a benefit and a, a, a downside. It is not a linear game. It's not the kind of thing where you can expect payoff for any of these plot hooks. Which is, again, why I emphasize how much I like the world, how much I like the setting. There's not a particular story that I'm especially committed to, but I nonetheless want to live in this area, if you can catch my distinction. Agreed. It has this very interesting card system. Well, let's, so, Yeah, let's talk about mechanics for Let's a talk about some mechanics. So you have two decks of cards in front of you. You have a combat deck and you have a diplomacy deck. And when you... When you in, encounter an, an encounter, Mark, you're encountering an encounter... <laughs> and it'll tell you whether or not it's going to be a combat one or a diplomacy one. And you grab your deck and you grab some cards. And it has this very interesting, you know, line up the symbols. You know, do you have the right skills? Do you have the right cards that trigger off of each other? And they do all these abilities and either you succeed or you don't. And then you get your Benny. What do you think about the systems? Those particular ones, the diplomacy and combat systems. I I think it was a little fiddly. And I really... I really like the fact that you get to reshuffle, you reshuffle the deck every time. 
it's a fairly large deck, but it's the fact that because you get to reshuffle every time, you, there's no problem picking up the deck and going through it and reading cards. Like, so if there's downtime, if someone else is in combat and you're not, you can look through your deck and see what's going on. You can just see stuff like that. It doesn't seem to slow down the game. You're, you're usually only playing two or three cards and, and you've succeeded or you failed, or you can just look at the card and say, well, the detriment to running away is not that bad. I'm just going to run away and, and take the hit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the downtime, to be honest. We've mostly been avoiding the big fights because the they're not worth it. There are these things called guardians that roam around the world and make things really obnoxious, and they just serve as roadblocks. This is a theme I'm going to be returning to later, this notion of roadblocks. And so we've mostly been taking the low-hanging fruit. And yes, their comp- encounters tend to be relatively straightforward and quick, but even then, I'm not a huge fan of the downtime. It's The, 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 the sort of puzzle of matching icons is fine-ish, so I, th- I think the combat's fine. It gets the job done. Same thing with diplomacy. Diplomacy and combat work almost identically. The part that I where, I where I like it is how it feeds into your character progression. You might look through your deck and you say, ah, in my case, the character I'm playing, a lot of these cards trigger if you're maxed out on practicality, which is one of the six traits that your character has. So I knew from the start what I needed to advance my character. I should increase my practicality and or start buying new cards that triggered off of practicality. And this helped me feel like I had a little bit more agency over a system that is fundamentally random and fundamentally just an icon matching exercise. And it helped give a little bit more narrative texture to my sense of character progression. And so the fact that those two things could mesh as well as they did, I thought was was reasonably pleasant. But other than that, I felt that the mechanisms of combat and diplomacy were serviceable. Which is which is too bad because the other alternative for game ne- mechanism is action management, right? Because you yes. have this you have the certain number of energy which lets you do a certain number of actions during the day. And that's pretty well set. You know, it's like this everything costs a certain number of actions. There's no real randomness there. You just cycle through them and do them. So this is where my biggest criticism, I think, in the game, or the most in-depth criticism of the game is, is the fact that where the game is in the card play, where it could get interesting and there could be cool stuff there, there's no real payoff. There's no, you're not collecting any resources when you win or lose. You're not, you're not really gaining anything. You're just getting through that combat or you're just not losing out. Whereas where you have to get the things to advance the game, you're just grinding out your actions it's like okay i need four magic it's okay i spend two i spend two i spend two and you're just grinding out to get the resources you need so i think they i think if they put the emphasis a little bit more on on the actual gameplay of the cards to get the resources of the stuff you need for the game i think it would have been a more enjoyable experience we've been talking a lot about video games this episode would you mind if i did a sort of an elaborate comparison with video games sure So take a game like Star Control 2, which is somewhat unfair. This is the greatest game ever made. But Star Control 2 has a brilliant story, and it was the sequel to a game which was mostly just about starship combat. So the starship combat engine was already solid. So you've got the best of both worlds. Compare that to other a lot of other modern games, and I'm going to pick on one that I played recently called Control. And Control's got a great story and great setting, and then they realize, oh, wait, no, we have to make it a game. Uh, Let's shove in some third-person shooting. And the third-person shooting is fine. It's, it, it gets the job done, but it's something to do to break up the pacing of this interesting atmosphere building and, and weird things happening. So it's a perfunctory nod to gameplay conventions, in my estimation. And I feel the Tainted Grail Fall of Avalon mostly goes down that path for almost all of the mechanistic elements of the game. 
Compare that again to a lot of other recent developments in, in computer gaming where they're like, look, if we have a good story to tell, why don't we just tell the story? If you look at games like Telltale Games, if you look at the successful walking simulators, you don't need to have a shooting or fighting or whatever thing stuck in the middle just for arbitrary pacing reasons. If you've got a good story to tell, tell the story. I don't know if board games necessarily want to take that route. I'm not saying that Tainted Grail Fall of Avalon should have been a novel, but I'm saying that I get the sense that you're making concessions just for the sake of making concessions. And the way that it mostly manifests is, as you say, it's a grind for resources. There's a portion of the map you want to get to. We're following a story hook. We have a vague sense of where we want to go because our map is terrible, because the world's falling apart, and we're not exactly sure if we can get there safely because the world's falling apart. But mostly what we need to do in order to get to the next stage of the map is to activate another menu. And again, the whole mythology behind the Menhirs, civilization is a mistake imposed here by a conquering imperialist. That part, I think, is awesome. And the figures themselves. And the awesome. figures are beautiful. And this notion of areas of the world falling into chaos, into primordial, untamed magic, all of that is great. And, and, they, and they come with a disc, and it ticks down every turn, and it's sort of like a, a, a timer, and you have to do what you need to do in a certain amount of time. And, and get the, the next way one. the rubber hits the road is you go to a piece of map, and it says, give me six food and seven magic cubes and that part is terrible i hate it it is so unpleasant and pointless and stupid because it's this giant roadblock that says okay you need to feed me this many uh, this many bennies in order to proceed with the parts that you like so it's like okay i spent 200 to get food what are you doing i spent 200 to get magic okay i guess i'll do the same and uh, well i guess we're spending the night here again okay the food goes out uh all right what do we need to get there now we need two more wealth and three more magic okay fine so all of that part most of the actual gameplay, I do not enjoy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Loving everything about the story and how the story progresses and, and everything else about it is fantastic, but just the grind, like you said. Yes. Really. And it, it's weird because it's not the normal kind of grind in fantasy adventure games. In normal fantasy adventure games, the grind is more like the grind in Japanese-style RPGs, where I have to go beat up 17 million rats in order to level up to go get the boss. That's not what's going on in Tainted Grail. So it's at least a little bit better in that sense. But I compare this to a game like City of Kings. City of Kings was also a fantasy adventure game with a lot of resource management involved. But there, it was fully internalized as a Euro element of the game. The goal of the scenario is to get 30 wood to home base. And that was fine. And that was okay. And it was cool and it kind of worked. Yes. Here, not so much. It's just the, the the absolute grind of always needing more food, always needing more magic, always needing more wealth to just shove into these menus. It doesn't completely destroy the thematic immersion, but it comes awfully close. And it means that very much of the time you will be engaging with the worst elements of the game. And it is very frustrating. One of the chief reasons why I'm glad we're going to be able to space out our experience with Tainted Grail. Yeah. You don't want to play too many sessions in a row. Absolutely. Let's go over some of other oh, some good points that I have here. The saving system, like when you're done a certain chapter or, or or whatever have you, it has a great little sheet that you write everything down. Uh, I think we both agree that the first game setup was a little long, but the ones after that, like second play, third play, was almost instantaneous. Like, you know, here's the two sheets, I'll set those up. You got the map out and we're playing within minutes. There's practically no paperwork. The setup is miraculously straightforward and quick. The insert is relatively cleverly designed to facilitate all of these things, and I was very pleasantly surprised with how little 
component wrangling there is. That is another thing that very often in adventure games you have problems with yes. in campaign games. You're just wrangling with components all My the time. My very next point is just the flow of the whole game. Even though some of the mechanisms we said we didn't like very much, it's the fact that you're never searching for, you know, it's like, oh, we're fighting this now. we got to search for that miniature or search for those cards or get those abilities. It's like, no, you drew the card, you line up your cards, it's over. You're not like looking through the box trying to find all this stuff. It's just like you do it, it's done, and you're on to the next thing. Setup's good. Locations, I love all the locations. It's much like we said, Seventh Continent, you're putting out these cards and they're all numbered and you move around, but there's always something to do on each card. It's either you're investigating that card on the back, there's a story or in the book, there's going to be a story or even the illustration on the card just itself tells a story. Love all the locations. And there's clues, like, even even if the, you feel the, the little bit of story that's on the card is not very much, sometimes there's like a little hidden clue within the story that's going to help you figure out what's going on. So overall, I like, as I say, the locations feel lived in. Everything feels very well fleshed out. And overall, the writing of the game is very, very high quality. But I have a couple of minor problems. One of them is that I sometimes fell into what I'm now going to call the context trap, which is to say I selected this option, but there's something about the context that the author understood that I did not understand. And now there's a consequence of this action that is wildly different from what I expected to happen. This also happens in computer games all the time, for what it's worth. There was this one instance where I wanted my character to just go talk to people, and then suddenly in the next option I was being forced to pick a side. It's like, wait a minute, I wanted more information before this happened, but I guess this is the way it's going? Okay. And that didn't happen very often, but it did happen, and that was unfortunate. Another aspect that I thought was unfortunate is a lot of your options in the storybook uh, chapters are based on a whole bunch of nested conditionals. You may select this option if you have part four of this thing and part six of this other, but do not have part two of this other thing. And that part was just a little bit fr- uh, cumbersome, but the part where it was at the worst was where there were spoilers. There would be these issues, and mostly I tried to hide them from you because the rulebook encourages you to just have one person reading from the storybook, and it works it works fine. And the amount of writing, I think, is good. There are not massive walls of text. Just a quick, on the, on the reading part, I just have to say that your narrative reading was so fantastic. We did have a session that was up, up where my, my partner was staying. She said she was like pulled right into the story due to, really? due to, your, due to your, your storytelling abilities. So well, anyhow... Was, One of the things that I was doing to keep you safe from these things was there would be situations where this option exists if the following conditional applies, and the conditionals referred to story beats. Story beats that I didn't even know were possible. Identifying characters that I didn't know existed, or elements of Arthurian legends that I didn't necessarily know were going to be implicated in that particular way. So suffice to say, I've been spoiled for a number of possible story elements just by virtue of how the story options are presented, which is not ideal. It's not a huge deal, but it's not ideal. And the final thing about how the, just how the story is presented, and this actually is a bit more of a deal, I'm not a fan of the way the game represents women. In the core game, there are four available characters. Only one of them is a woman. That's bad enough. And she's wearing like this moss bikini type of thing, which is way out of style with everything else that's presented in the game. And she's such a stereotypical healer, mother, sensitive soul type thing, which again, if you're only going to have one female character as a possible player character is doubly problematic. Like, the other characters in their diplomacy deck get to do things like grim joke or misdirection or common folk wisdom. And she does things like she cries a single tear and then they're overwhelmed. It's, it's, it's problematic and they should have known better. In that, in that vein, the characters, other characters backstories I thought were fairly well done. Yes. Like we said, all dark, all not so great. You know, mine was a, a recovering drug addict from mushrooms and it's not as though they're like, anti-heroes or anything else they're just 
normal everyday problems. I and... wouldn't even necessarily say that they're all dark. It's just it's just enough to make you care about the characters and they're flawed and they're interesting. And these are things that come up again during the storytelling. And the fact that you're left a letter from your, you know, the the main group A that went out on the thing. And the A-team, yes. The A-team. And it's so worded in such a way that is, you know, demoralizing and, yeah. and painful. And, but, you know, sounds like, you know, it's, they're trying to promote you, but they're not really just telling you how terrible you are. It, it, it was very nice <laughs> writing. Another good point is that there's a dream thing in the game as well. The The location will tell you whether or not you're going to dream that night and either you're going to have a nightmare or a dream. And it's an interesting way to, to progress the story or give you clues or hints about what's to come. That's the end of my good points. Into the bad points. We already talked about the goals. Like you said, you get to a location and you have to go down this huge list of, have you done this yet? Have you done that yet? Have you done that? Spoilers. That was getting painful. And it really is, just, just to reemphasize, if you are willing to just live in the world and let things develop, the game will proceed in a relatively satisfying path most of the time. When you are doggedly fixated on a particular goal and you figure this is the thread we're going to pull on and this is the way we want to get it, sometimes the game will fight you. Sometimes it's just because you have to go and tediously erect another menu or sometimes because you can't get there, etc., etc. And sometimes just because the game is so freeform most of the time that when you specifically try to go down a checklist, like you're desperately going down the checkpoints of a, of, of a task, then the game starts to get in your way. And then we already talked about the grind, how fabulous, how fantastic the menus are, but then how painful they are, because that's just how you progress in the game. You cannot, when you have a menu on the, on the board, you can see the four map pieces around, sorry. Diagonals as well. Yeah. Diagonals as well. So it's nine, nine total map pieces that you get to see when the menu is out. And if you want to go off of those nine, you have to build another one and then you get to progress. So that's pretty well your your overarching grind to move along the game board. Which on the one hand is great because in addition to all the thematic elements of the world descending into the chaos, uh, the pre-human chaos I thought was wonderful, it's also just a great way of keeping the map manageable and giving you a sense of focus in a world that seems very sprawling. But like we said that if you play too many times in a row, it's going to get old awfully quick because you're just going to be like pushing... You know, build the next well, menu. Yeah, go to the next you, once, map. Build the next you, menu. Or go to the next. Yeah, map. once you yeah. know what you need to do, it's just it's going to get. And then and sometimes near the end of our last game, there's sometimes we had nothing to do in our turn because the one per, we need what four magic. Oh, only you can get magic. So I guess yep. you're spending your whole turn. I'll just sit here and watch you meditate to get magic and do nothing. Yes, honestly, in in terms of my fundamental objections to this game, although again with the notion that I do want to continue the campaign at a leisurely pace. I sometimes feel as though the best iteration of a genre can sometimes demonstrate that the genre shouldn't be done at all. And I've expressed my misgivings with adventure games, certainly the ones that are not, you know, tactical combat games. And Tainted Grail Fall of Avalon is definitely not in the tradition of Assault on Doomrock or Too Many Bones or, or adventure games of that elf. This is very much in the sort of talisman or prophecy or wandering around type of, uh, of adventure games. This is the best one of those that I've tried. And I think part of that is telling me that this is not a genre that should exist. That this is a genre that has fundamental flaws because even when the storytelling is really good, they don't touch with the gameplay very well. And I, really, it serves to highlight all the failings of, of a lot of the other ones that gone before. It took writing this good. It took a, a world this compelling to make me think that I would really feel better interacting with this world, probably in a different venue. 
That being said, I forgot to talk about one other thing that they did really well, and that's the experience system. You're going to get experience for all sorts of different things that you'll never know of. But anyway, the fact that there's no real downtime, it's all on a quick little reference card, how you spend it. And I think there's a, an actual decision space there. Either you're either going to save it or you're going to improve your decks or you're going to improve your abilities. And I like how you have, you know, you're good at some things and how, you know, I went good in diplomacy and you went good in combat and it seemed to work back and forth. I think they just worked really well. Yeah. And as I said, the way that your stat improvements dovetail with your starting asymmetric deck, which dovetail with the new cards that you want to purchase, which in turn connect back with your character's personality and how it is they deal with the world and how it is that they've approach problem solving. And that gives you a little bit of thematic and narrative traction in what is otherwise a, a normal, a relatively normal experience progression system. And that part I think was pretty cool. Then I just have a bunch of little minor things. It seems very much like Agricola, like we already talked about, feed your workers. You're constantly worrying about yes. having food all the time. The book had this weird skull coin code thing, which is a very minor gripe. It just seemed annoying and unnecessary. Then then there's the time per chapter. I'm not, I meant to ask you this earlier. Did it say anything about, you know, estimated time, how long this particular chapter would take? No. So I, I think that's a problem. They, they, the, I think the, that, the chapters vary wildly in gameplay time, yes. I think, and I think they should have an estimated in there. Even though they could be wildly wrong, everyone's going to play it differently or do different things. Just like an, as this chapter is going to take X amount of time, just so you have some sort of gauge on how long this game is going to take. Or, mm. or maybe you've, you've gone on the, off on the wrong tangent and maybe, you know, you're doing something wrong. If it's going longer than it should be. I think the only way you could do it is not in terms of minutes, but just on a relative scale. Just rank it on a one out of five or something and that's a scale unto itself because you never know how long people are going to take yeah yeah. just anything to just give people an idea and the box is one to four players no just no i would either play this solo or with two i would can you imagine playing this with three or four players it would be unplayable in my opinion well it's one of the reasons why we rather forced it into rotation uh, in the new social distancing model of so very wrong about games because it seemed to be best with two. I, I I rather like the fact that there's another character there who brings another set of baggage and another set of backstory. I think it adds just enough level of narrative texture that it makes the additional downtime worth it. And I I do, you know, reading out loud a whole bunch of, 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 of text can sometimes be a little bit long, but I think, as I say, they've been somewhat judicious in the overall length. And having another person talk about the world and get to explore the world with me has been valuable. So I don't think it's quite as ideal deal uh, from a solo perspective as you would, although I did play the, the, the tutorial solo. I do share your misgivings about a three or four player experience, though. Well, to circle back to what we said at the beginning, despite all these rather rather considerable misgivings, because as I say, we're both on the same page about a lot of this game's flaws, I do want to see more of it. Yes. Just at the right pace. Because the, the story is that good. The, it's not even necessarily the story. I would, in terms so of the, narrative, the world, is the that world, good? the setting, the the, the the overall backdrops. Every session that we've played, there have been at least two or three times where I'm like, oh well, that's that's neat and interesting. I'd like to pull more on that thread, or that was that was strange in an, in in a, in a well done way. And that is definitely not something that I can say for the overwhelming majority of quote unquote narrative heavy board game experiences. Yeah, and and the and the story is there. Like sometimes. Uh, then, you know, the big character will go off on this long speech and they'll hint at something, but you'll never hear about it again. They hinted at something and we go up there and then 
what they talked about, you know, that whole story is there. And I think they did a great job of flushing everything out. So, in summary, more to follow. More to follow on Tainted Grail. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And it really helps us if you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.